Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with A.W. Hammond. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling to help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. Now, 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands. It's unceded land. Treaty was never made in Australia, and I want to pay my respects to the ongoing connection of the traditional owners to their lands. Now, A.W. Hammond trained as, and worked as a lawyer before penning his Ned Kelly Award-nominated novel, Blood Witness. He wrote a follow-up to that, The Unbroken Line, and today he's joining us on the podcast to discuss his latest novel. It's different to what he's done so far. It's called The Paris Collaborator. Paris, August 1944. Auguste Duchesne is renowned for his ability to find missing people but he finds himself in an impossible situation. As the Allies close in on Paris, Duchesne must find a missing priest and a German soldier. He's torn between two sides and must work one against the other to somehow satisfy two masters and protect his family. Now, this is going to be a two-parter, and in part one of my interview with Alex, we're going to establish what's at stake for Duchesne and get some insight into how Alex has created the world of wartime Paris. It's a really fascinating multimedia kind of process he went through. There's also going to be some insights into his detective influences. Join me as we discover A.W. Hammond's The Paris Collaborator. I want to introduce to you a fantastic new novel that, as I began, thought was going to be a little bit of literary travel for the mind. And as I got into it, I realised there were so many ideas that were engaging with our world today. I am joined on the show by A.W. Hammond, and we are going to be discussing the Paris Collaborator. Alex, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Andrew. It's wonderful to be here. Now, I just want to introduce you a little bit uh, more properly here. You trained and worked as a lawyer before penning your Ned Kelly Award-nominated novel, Blood Witness. You're also the author of The Unbroken Line, but today we are travelling a little bit further afield um, in the novel The Paris Collaborator. It's Paris, August 1944. Auguste Duchesne is renowned for his ability to find missing people. Now he finds himself in an impossible situation. As the Allies close in on Paris, Duchesne must find a missing priest and a German soldier. Working both sides against the other, he must somehow satisfy two masters to protect his family. So I thought perhaps we could start with Duchesne. He's an ex-soldier, a veteran of the trenches of the First World War. He's a teacher with a tragic history that means he no longer, no longer steps into a classroom. He's also something of the archetype of the classical detective. He's both got hard-boiled elements and he's a little bit golden age with his, with his keen perceptions. In your previous work, you've, you've taken a more, I guess, contemporary take on the mystery and the detective. What drew you to all of the intersecting genres that make up Duchenne and the Paris collaborator? Yeah, that's a... Very interesting question. I think um, from 
from where I was coming from with the earlier books, which are obviously, as you said, a contemporary uh, setting with a with a lawyer who investigates. Um, I was trying to find a way to sort of basically had this idea about the setting and how I wanted to uh, put a character in a classic kind of conundrum of of of, of detective fiction, which is with you know two competing cases at the same time, and then the setting of occupied Paris sort of immediately lend itself to two oppositional forces in, within that, right? So we've got the, the, the Nazis who've occupied Paris and the resistance who are resisting them. And they reflect sort of two extremes, you know, authority and control, uh, armed resistance and conflict. And it, working for either one of those would be a dangerous circumstance for this sort of, as you, as you have pinpointed, a sort of protective character. Uh, but then having him have to work simultaneously for both of them just up the up the drama, up the risk, up the sort of challenge, and then allowed me to play with sort of those moral questions around collaboration, um, which I'm sure we'll we'll get to. Um, so yeah, so it was sort of looking at the tropes of detective fiction in some way, um, and without giving away too much of the book. I mean, inevitably in these sorts of stories, the the two competing cases merge, um, and that just would only seek to heighten the the drama and risk for that character. Uh, so there was part of that, um, and we were chatting a bit before before we started recording. And I guess the thing is that we've also got the um, the question of his name, and I was sort of evoking the historical character of um, Edgar Allan Poe's character, C. Auguste Dupin, who is attributed Poe is attributed to writing the first detective story when he wrote, wrote Murders in the Rue Morgue, and drawing from that is where some of those more classical ideas come across. So Conan Doyle actually took. Poe's character, C. Auguste Dupin, and it's what he references in the study in Scarlet. He mentions a, a, the detective Dupin over in Paris. Um, and then he also took that aspect of Dupin, which is fine attention to detail, and built that into Holmes. So he, he acknowledges his source. And in the same way, I'm sort of harkening back to that. So that's where you get that sort of classic element of the highly observant uh, detective who notices things that other people don't know, which makes him so good at that. But then also trying to make that a bit more of a believable character in a real world setting. So he, he is a survivor of, of, of a bombing and his classroom, he's a former teacher, as you, you know, and his classroom um, was bombed and he is the only survivor. And so he's suffering with the survivor's guilt. So his motivation for going out and finding these lost children in a war zone uh, is one of wanting to make amends for that sense of guilt that he has. So it's trying to ground it in a very sort of modern psychological the premise of this is what motivates him to go and solve these things. It's, it's why he finds the missing children. It's why he looks for missing people. I want to look also at a second in, sorry, for a second at perhaps, and I don't want to downplay all of the extraordinary scene setting that you create, but perhaps the most extraordinary juxtaposition of the Paris collaborator is the relationship between Duchenne and his turtle. And, it, it jumps. It jumps out at me that one. This is a relationship that it grounds us in Paris. It evokes Duchenne's humanity in a way that almost nothing else could. As he as he walks through the streets, he has a keen eye out for food. Food is scarce. People can't give up their food for pets, for food, for his turtle. And the turtle seems to be this this counterpoint, a, a being that can retreat into itself, that, that could you know kind of ride out the storm in its own shell, and it, it creates this incredible loving 
relationship that kind of punctuates moments of the narrative? Uh, yes, I, I misspoke, didn't I? When I said he's the only survivor, of course, uh, the turtle is the other survivor of the of the bombing. It, yeah, and 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 um, yeah, it's, it's it's yeah, that's it's interesting that you you talk about that. I mean, in many ways, uh, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. This 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 is a is a creature, and I'd add to that too that the turtles are interesting in that they're, they're not an affectionate animal like a cat or a dog might be. They, you know, they they're very they're a reptile, right? So. It's, it's still living in its own little world. So it almost makes his generosity towards it more pronounced because it's not something that's going to give him, you know, affection back uh, when, he's, when he's searching for food to feed it. And um, it's sort of the, I guess it's almost in some ways his aspirational ideal is if he could be like the turtle and, and, and remove himself from this world that's imposing itself on him. Uh, and he's being dragged into these investigations and putting him and his daughter's life at risk. Uh, that would, in some ways, I guess, be his perfect scenario, just to retreat entirely. So, yeah, it is. It is a. I mean, it's very astute to point out, and I thought it was, you know, it's just a wonderful metaphor for his, um, for his, the contrast of his experience to that of the of the turtle. And I mean, it's also a good fun writer's trick in some ways. You know, I, I, an old um, somebody when I, one of my sort of uh, publicists many years ago, Penguin, pointed out to me that what we see a protagonist do when no one else is watching is often what defines us most strongly for them. So his affection to an animal when there's nobody to judge him sort of sets him up as a sympathetic character. And given that we're going to put him later on into a circumstance where he's essentially, although compelled, having to work for the Nazis, means that we want to establish early on that this is, this is someone who is compassionate and, and, you know, and, and a, has a strong sense of humanity rather than somebody who's, uh, opportunistic and and looking for their own after their own interests. Yeah, remarkable. And you drew me back to the epigraph at the beginning of the book. The only clue to what a man can do is what a man has done. And I had not connected that to um to the turtle. They're, they're, they are they are just also fascinating creatures. You're right about the idea of of affection. I, I found myself in a position of rescuing a turtle a few weeks back from a road near my house and returning it to the duck pond. And I swear the thing was glaring at me the whole time and I, 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 he had no appreciation for me interrupting his walk across this road. Um, now, I talked there about the, the search for turtle food kind of helping evoke the, the streetscape of Paris and the story is set in the week before the liberation of occupied Paris. The situation is extreme, but you, you also seek to explore some of the simplicity of life in these moments. Can you tell me about evoking Paris in this time of war? Because it's it's both an extraordinarily well-documented period, but also perhaps something of a mystery for us in the day-to-day of street level. Yes, uh, you're quite right. There's there's a lot of first-hand uh, accounts in the form of a lot of letters that have been written by people who were there living in Paris during the occupation. And then there's a lot of second-hand sources, so there's a lot of... Um, uh, research has been done, and, and sort of from, from the from the range of full academic text through to sort of more approachable ones, which were the ones that I read, the like the more approachable ones. Uh, and um, I sort of lent a lot on the photography of the time um, because there were a number of photographers documenting everything and the sort of the day to day experience of what it would have been. Um, but yeah, then it's just about. I mean, I find that when I approach writing and, and to sort of evoke the world, I'm leaning on other genres actually more so than crime fiction. 
um, or, or historical. I'm thinking more towards uh, fantasy and science fiction and what they do, well, less hard science fiction, but more soft science fiction. When the world, the world building that they do, and I've, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from those and how to effectively evoke a, a world setting. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's always the challenge between wanting to put every single piece of research that you've discovered and drop it into the book and basically sort of try and almost, you know, write every fascinating thing down that almost as if you're sort of trying to write a, a, another, you know, piece of nonfiction around what it was like um, and balancing that against how much you, you include to, to keep the story moving forwards and, and serve the story. But yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't turn away from some things. Like I was absolutely fascinated by the buses in Paris in the 40s. Their headlamps were blue, you know, and I had to put that in there because it's so it's so strange. You're looking a lot at advertising at the time to sort of see what sort of products. So if I'm looking up what kind of beer, you're looking at historical advertising, sort of draw or cigarettes. You know, there's a whole sub-thread in cigarettes and what sorts of cigarettes people are smoking at each time and when the American cigarettes are turning up and the German cigarettes and the French cigarettes, you know. So, yeah, the yeah, it's it's um, it was enjoyable, and it, yeah, it was certainly um, yeah, there was a lot of first-hand sources in the form of photography that really helped lend to that. I mean, I'm struck with one photo in particular where it's at Montmartre, which is you know the artist commune, uh, where all where Moulin Rouge is there, but a lot of the artists have their garrets in that area, and so it attracted a lot of um, tourists, you know, throughout the the, the nineteenth and twentieth century to go there, and and they would sit and paint on easels the sort of skyline looking down because it's at the top of the hill. So you get this mm. you know, amazing view of Paris and um, the Germans are no different. So, you know, they were being sent there on R and R by, by to, in order to attend, you know, Paris and, and enjoy its cultural treasures. And they, there's all these amazing photos of, of, of Parisians sort of walking past on the street, trying to get about their daily business while they're very aware of the presence of an occupying force. And there's that occupying force sitting at easels, sipping coffees, trying to, you know, act like they're tourists while they're in full uniform in front of everybody. So it's, it's, it's quite surreal. Um, and also just such, such rich sort of uh, atmosphere to build into a, a novel. I loved what you said there about drawing on genres like fantasy. And as soon as you said that, it, it, it clicked in my mind. I loved Duchenne walking the streets. Walking, walking is... One of my favourite pursuits. Walking has such a rich philosophical, I, I guess, kind of background. So many philosophers write about walking. But the thing that really jumped out for me is Duchenne was, obvious, Duchenne was obviously reminding me of Terry Pratchett's Sam Vimes, who walks through Ankh-Morpork. And, and, and Terry Pratchett has some incredible, um, incredible passages about walking the streets and and. These are in no way direct parallels, but that sense of walking and creating space, especially in a fantasy world, and essentially Paris, occupied Paris, may as well be a fantasy world to us. It is so far away from our daily experience. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, quite, it's quite surreal. Um, and, and yeah, you're right. I mean, having the opportunity to explore it at that street level also gives you the sense of, like, as you were talking about earlier, the sort of hardball detective character. I mean, usually they're, you know, walking about, you know, uh, moving between the street at sort of street level and, and observing the sort of day to day goings on and that sort of street level experience rather than sort of sitting up beyond looking down at it from from um, from out of the, from out of the you know uh, a room. Um, and I'm also struck with um, 
and I'm only as we're talking about it now. I mean, I, I think also Calvino, when he writes about cities, mm. um, there's a lot of that sort of walking. And I think I might have, on reflection, this sort of gathering herbs from the street probably lifted that directly from him subconsciously. So. Okay, um, we've yeah. we've got we've now got everyone's interest peaked. We've got the fantasy Terry Pratchett fans. <laughs> we've got the Francophiles, and we've got the, the the literary heads with Calvino. Let's jump into the plot where Duchenne's twin missions they place him squarely in the centre of the seething conflict on the streets of Paris. Um, by working for both the resistance and the Germans, he's between these two poles of political thought and action. Now, we find ourselves, I guess similarly, living in times of extremes of ideology. Was that at all on your mind as you wrote? It, it absolutely was. Uh, and I, although it would, I think it would have been difficult to write in that setting and ignore the, the occupied Paris and this idea of collaboration and what, to, what being a collaborator meant, because it was so front of mind for everybody, um, the Parisians, uh, and I guess also the, the Germans in the sense of the, the resistance from the French. Um, also at the same time, I mean, we had a former president in the United States who I don't like to actually continue to use his name now that he's out of office, but um, there were these extremes of ideology, you know, and I think very much when it comes to, if you're looking at, you know, national socialism and Nazism, it's, it's, it's too easy to just assume and I'm guilty of this myself. You sit around going, well, that's not possible. That and we, that would never happen again. I mean, it was obviously so abhorrent at the time. And yet you see that there's this, this, this more and more growing stark contrast between ideology over rationalism. And I guess that's sort of what I'm exploring in the book. And it mirrors with now, you know. I mean, all the, I'm, I'm often reflect on, you know, and this is just sort of how my brain works, moving around, looking at things. But the, the internet should be this amazing resource of facts and education and information for people in a way that is unparalleled in human history. And yet it increasingly seems to be becoming a thing for, you know, um, people factionalizing and holding on to uh, ideological ideas and opinion over evidence, you know. Um, and then, you know, the extremes of that, that sort of in the echo chamber of isolated groups, you know, building up and, and, and so... Yeah, I think that was playing through my mind absolutely when I was writing about it. I was struck by the breakdown in civility. As Duchenne rides the metro, he gives up his seat to a woman. And as she says, thank you, it turns out she's German. She has a German accent. Duchenne is then made a pariah for the rest of his journey. Uh, People turn their backs on him. They hiss do you think that this is a sort of a fundamental shift in in these times of extreme that we that we lose some of our kindness, or is there an aspect of performance here where people must be seen to be a member of the right side? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's spot on. I think it's two things. So that that's actually drawn from the writing of the time. Uh, so when when a lot of pamphlets were distributed around resisting the occupation and sort of the citizenry and, and, the, and of Paris were encouraged to not, not directly resist through action and put their lives at risk, but, but resist through silence, not to aid the Germans by providing direction to them or, you know, so, 
and and the Germans wrote about this as well. You know, um, you had these sort of you can only imagine conscripted, somewhat naive young men being sent to Paris on R and I, expecting to be you know helped and given directions, and you know because they're on R and R, they don't see that as part of being this sort of a war zone for them. And writing back about how cold the Parisians were towards them. Uh, but I think you're right. Like that was then became the signals that were needed to be broadcast from Parisian to Parisian that, you know, I'm, I am, although subtly, but importantly, resisting this occupation. That's it for this great conversation with A.W. Hammond. It is a two-parter, so stay tuned. There will be part two dropping tomorrow. Alex's new novel is called The Paris Collaborator. It is out now from Echo Publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You can find Final Draft on all your socials. Just look for at Final Draft 2 SCR. Subscribe to your podcast app. There will be new great conversations and bonus material every week. We're publishing about two to three times, so there's always going to be something to keep your reading mind occupied. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back with part two of my Paris Collaborator interview. And uh, until then, happy reading. Bye now.